You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 18. Today, the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast will be featuring Dr. Santiago Lopez. Santiago Lopez is a fellow emergency medicine physician. He's currently a resident, a doctor in the state of New York, who has a fantastic, phenomenal story to tell us. We connected through the internet and we exchanged uh, some messages and I felt that his introduction and his uh, history seems to be rather motivating and he's uh, unique on the fact that there are some struggles that he had to go through to make it in America as a successful physician. Right now, Dr. Santiago Lopez is doing his emergency medicine residency training at Good Samaritan Hospital Medical Center, and he is what we call a PGY1. PGY means postgraduate year number one out of three, correct? You're in a three or a four-year path? I'm in a four-year program, yeah. So he's, uh, emergency medicine has two types of paths. Uh, Either a combined residency program of emergency medicine, internal medicine, emergency medicine, family medicine that lasts five years, emergency medicine, pediatrics, five years, or you have individual programs that are four years, very few of them, I would say probably only like 25% or less of the programs across the United States. And there is also the three-year categorical programs in emergency medicine, in which that was the case for me. He's currently in New York, and I want to make everybody aware that... uh, Right now, we have reached uh, 2,400 downloads. I really want to thank you for your participation and involvement on the podcast. And as of this week, the YouTube channel is live. Uh, My uh, first episode has gone live, uh, the pilot episode, and I find it remarkably motivating. We have more than 300 views in less than 48 hours, and I'm hoping to get some useful content for you guys as well to connect this podcast towards that and just to make this podcast uh, create uh, to have more awareness across the internet. So, Dr. Santiago Lopez, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, taking time off your few hours off before you go into your shift. And uh, I do know that you uh, went for medical education at the UAG, what we call the Universidad Autónoma de Guadalajara in Mexico. And uh, you've just completed your training in May 2019. And uh, you went to undergraduate medical education in Iowa State uh, University of Science and Technology in Ames, Iowa, where he completed an undergrad degree on biology. He has a fantastic, fantastic story to tell us. Dr. Lopez, could you tell us a little bit more about you and how uh, you were able to succeed this far? Hi, thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. I saw your post on the internet and I think uh, this is a great podcast. Um, some more difficulty and more difficult process compared to other people. So I think this is a great platform. Um, so thank you for having me. Now, with that being said, um, yeah. So 
long story short, I was born and raised in Chicago. Both my parents came to this country in the 80s. They left everything behind. And their point of coming to this country was, I'm sure, like most people coming to this country was for their kids to have a better life. My mom and dad literally left everything behind. We, we lived in a humble home. We didn't have much, but they did with what they could. Um, they always made sure we had food around a table and a roof or a house. Um, and I'll always be thankful for that. But with that being said, I had to make something of myself. I couldn't let them just come to this country and not do something for them. So we lived in Chicago. It wasn't a bad neighborhood, but it wasn't the greatest. I saw people get shot and, and died in front of me a couple of times. So like that was the kind of neighborhood we lived in. And my parents didn't want us to ra- be raised in that neighborhood. So they just worked harder and they got enough money to help us move to another neighborhood called Skokie. So I, I did middle school and high school in Skokie, Illinois. From there, like how you said, I was the first person in my family to go to college and I attended Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, how you said. I got a bachelor's degree. Again, the first person to graduate from there. So it's something that my family looks up to, and I, I try to pay everything back. I know that um, I just have to do what I can to make sure I fulfill their dreams as well as mine. And um, maybe I didn't always get the best scores um, in high school or in college. You know, I wasn't a valedictorian. I didn't have like a perfect GPA. I didn't have the perfect MCAT score. Uh, a bunch of these students, they think that they need the perfect MCAT score, the perfect GPA. And I wasn't necessarily that student. I, people learn differently. You know, I, I didn't learn necessarily the perfect way. I didn't learn how to study in undergrad. But what I did have was perseverance. And um, it was brought up to me that UAG was a medical school in Mexico. I had never heard of it. Once every door closed on me in, in the United States with my scores and my MCAT, I thought my life was over. But UAG opened their doors to me. And I'll always be thankful for them. Um, they allowed me to go to Mexico. It, was, uh, it used to be a five-year program. Now it's a four-year program, the traditional four years. They had the fifth-year pathway. But the first two years are in Mexico, and the, the third and fourth year are in the States doing your clinical rotations. And then um, we can go on from there. I think that's um, a generalized um, introduction, I guess, of my life and how I'm here now. Cool. Who was the fundamental person in your life to motivate you to become a doctor? Or was there anyone that ever encouraged you to become a physician? Or who were you looking up to that really kind of planted that seed in your spirit to move on from there? Yeah, great question. My family, there was no one really at the time who has been in anything of medicine. Both my parents were like uh, machinists and factory workers for the most part. So we didn't have any recognition of medicine. I just knew that I wanted to help people from a young age. You know, I thought for a while of going into the military because I just wanted to help people. And then from there on, it kind of deviated more into the schooling and, and in that way. But the aspect of just helping and saving lives, I think that was the most driving force for me, um, not necessarily someone planting a seed, if that makes sense, um, because I didn't have that with me. You know, our, our family was very humble. We didn't have anything. We didn't learn. We didn't know anything about medicine. So I had to figure out all these things along the way. How do your parents feel? How proud do they feel of you specifically having accomplished so much this far at such a young age? I mean, from what they tell me, um, I'm sure they, they say they're very proud of not just myself, but my sister and I. My sister is a nurse um, down in Texas. They're both very proud of us and what we've accomplished. And I think the, the thing that they're most proud of, especially my dad, um, he just won't mention it. You know, he's one of those old school kind of guys. For him, hearing his stories and how he came into this country and the struggles that he had to suffer coming over, for him, he, all he ever told me growing up, he's like, just work and study so you don't have to come home looking like me and my hands all cut up so you can have a better life. From what they tell me, 
I mean, my mom is more vocal about it, but I'm, I can feel it that they're very proud of who I am. And I'm very proud of what I have accomplished for them and for myself and for other people who have similar stories. Since you say that, I don't want to become political, but I know that we Latinos sometimes are categorized by political figures in this country of being bad people that we just come to this country to take advantage of the system and to just drain stuff from them and take on jobs that no one else that the Americans want to do. To be honest with you, our hopes and expectations, like mine, like Dr. Santiago's, was to come to this country to make someone of yourself. And, you know, you have choices, you have the path, you know, you, you make whatever you want to make of yourself. And this is the beautiful thing about America that I think, Santiago, and if you agree with me, if you work hard, you dedicate yourself, you're able to succeed. Yeah, 100%, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's very easy, not just for people from outside of the country coming in or anyone from anywhere you know it's very easy to deviate yourself my mom always told me and she always told me a saying she's like if the tree starts bending from the roots um it's always going to be bent you know so it's very important that you have good roots and a, and a good foundation um and you have people looking out for you and trying to direct you in the right way it doesn't matter to me where you're from in the country you know you could be from anywhere but if you have good intentions and, and you have a motivation to succeed and you, that's what you really set your mind to, it's absolutely possible. There's hundreds of people uh, like you and I who have done it, maybe not as vocal, but this is a great platform again for us to come out. You know, I have never heard of this type of IMG, FMG, so I think this is wonderful. But yes, absolutely. We come to this country. I would, luckily, I was born here. In this country, at least it gives us the opportunity to be something of ourselves. Awesome. And I can tell you're bilingual because initially our introduction, the preparation for the show, we were exchanging words in Spanish. And I think you're remarkably fluent and that's going to help you significantly in your professional career. So the question goes, how was the, your father and your mother, how were they about the languages spoken in the household? And did they ever mention how important and significant was to have a second language always available for you for interaction with people And how, I don't know if they ever mentioned it to you, it was going to help you most likely in the future professionally. Yeah, absolutely. My parents, again, all they ever did was trying to make a better life for my sister and I. So they really were hammering us on being bilingual from the beginning. Um, at home, even now, all we speak at home is Spanish with not just my parents, but all my rest of my family members, my grandparents. We all speak Spanish at home. English, I learned a little bit from my sister that was a little bit older than I am. And then at school, mostly, is where I learned English. But it was still a young age. You know, I, I started English in kindergarten. So I started picking it up. But at home, all we spoke was Spanish. And, it, and exactly your point, they knew exactly what the power of being able to speak fluently in two languages. Um, and they knew in the long run, they were like, this country's going to have, you're going to have to know more than just English. It's not, English is not going to be enough. So I, I'm thankful for that every day. I can assure you a significant advantage for you professional, as you can have yeah. been told by now that everybody's probably calling you, hey, Dr. Santiago, can you see this patient? Can you yeah. see that patient? Can you translate for me? <laughs> Or that, the way they do it to me, they send me all my Latino customers, my patients into my area, and I yeah. have 17 beds or Spanish-speaking people, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and then speaking on behalf of that, and in emergency medicine, it's even more helpful because we don't, I mean, we have these iPads and these phones that help translate, but how often are you going to have time to do that in a trauma or in a rapid response, you know, sometimes these patients, especially here in New York, I'm sure it's the same down in Florida, a lot of our population here doesn't speak English. Um, and if they do, it's like very minimal amounts. So when they do come in, let's say after an NBC, 
and, and it's a trauma and you need to get some information, let's say they're in oral anticoagulants, you know, you need to know what's going on. And sometimes they're like, we're Santi, like, let's get them in here. And it, and it helps. It speeds up everything. And if you agree with me, the times translation by the computer, if you get the chance to do that, doesn't really put the passions of the wording or the environment of the circumstances of what the patient wants to really express to you. Because Spanish is a very emotional, culturally loaded, spiritually loaded language that the message that they're trying to communicate is if it's not well perceived in the right environment and with the right circumstances might not be understood very well what the patient is trying to express. So one thing that I have seen is that my patients, when they see that I'm Latino, Colombian, and they can connect to you, like their eyes lighten up and they feel that there's someone finally that is going to be able to understand them. Absolutely. And you're 100% correct. I couldn't even say that any better. When a patient hears like, it, I mean, they, they feel happy and relieved that there's like at least a translator or a computer or something that helps translate for them because they, at least they can express it out. But when I come to them and I'm like, when I say, Dr. Lopez, como está? Que lo que viene hoy? Por que esto? Y lo que sea. Um, they just get like, how you said, your eyes are bright up and they feel like they're saved. They feel like finally something's yes. going to happen. And another thing that I learned too was going to medical school in Mexico. It didn't just allow me to just perfect my Spanish culture completely different, which is just because you speak Spanish doesn't necessarily mean you understand the person. Um, and I'm sure it's, if you're Colombian, I'm sure your Spanish and your words and your, and your accent is completely different. Sometimes words might not mean the same, but it allows you to like feel something for the patient and they understand it. And, you know, it just makes them feel a lot better. And at the end of the day, we're here for our patients. We're here to do what is best for them. So if that can help them, and it goes a long way. Absolutely. Santiago, a little earlier, you said something that really kind of moved me and gave me is, uh, goosebumps. You said that despite the fact that you were not the top 95th percentile, 99% student in high school, in undergrad, and that despite the fact that you did not have good MCAT scores, can you explain us really briefly what MCAT stands for, the, the MCAT? Yeah, I'm not sure what the abbreviations are. I apologize. I, I would have to go look them up. But um, it's like the medical like, um, like assessment exam. It pretty much is like a standardized test that every college student needs to take in order to get into medical school. Nowadays, there's uh, DO schools, there's MD schools, and there's uh, schools in the Caribbean or schools outside the country and other stuff like that. To get into medical school, you do need uh, to get uh, an MCAT score. They recently changed it. I remember my senior year of college, it was the, the old way. And now they recently changed the new guidelines and what they test. But yeah, I'm sorry. I would have to look up. The Medical college admission test. I just found that out. I was doing my life search here. Yeah. And, and you guys, please understand, I didn't go to college or postgrad. Um, I didn't have to take the MCAT to make it into residency program. There is something unique for U.S. Uh, graduates like Dr. Lopez. So we were saying... You said you might have not been the best at your scores on MCAT and other pre-med uh, grades. And you said that sometimes the doors shut down in front of you here in the U.S. Obviously, at that point in time, you still have the dream to become a doctor. What were your thoughts? You thought about the Caribbean, yeah. any other international countries, and why Mexico? So... Great question. Again, I, I explained earlier, nobody in my family knew anything about medicine. We, we, I mean, me going to college was like a big deal. We didn't even understand how college worked. We didn't understand how FAFSA worked. We didn't understand how anything worked. So we just had to figure it out along the way. I just knew I had to take an MCAT score. 
I took my MCAT, got my MCAT back. I remember, and I was just distraught. I was like, this is, this is it. Like it's over. But no, um, I remember my mom actually brought up one of her, the neurologists, one of the neurologists that she would see, um, cause she has a, a history of migraines. He actually went to Mexico and then he told my mom, and he's like, Hey, your son should look into this school. Like I went there. It's pretty good. Like just check it out. And even that I didn't even know about like medical schools in the Caribbean. I, I had no idea those existed. I didn't even know DO schools existed. I had nothing. I thought it was just like U.S. medical schools. So I applied and I didn't get in. And I was like, I knew I wasn't going to get in because of my scores. And I was like, well, it's just worth a shot. Because the worst thing that I can do is just apply and I don't get in. Like I, I don't lose anything. And that happened and didn't get in. I applied to Mexico, got an interview. And I remember when I got my interview, I started crying. Because I was like, all I need is a shot. That's all I'm asking for. I don't need anything else. Just give me the shot that I know I can prove that I can, I'm worth it. They gave me the interview. I flew down to San Antonio. I interviewed for like an hour, hour and a half. A couple of weeks later, I got a, an acceptance letter. And then I didn't even think about it. I once, like I graduated from Iowa State in May. I flew down to Mexico with just two luggage suitcases. So in Mexico, they have these uh, things where you can live with a family, una familia, and then you just rent out a little room. And my room was literally maybe like seven by 10. It was just enough to fit a little small twin size bed and a desk. But that's all I had, a twin size bed, a desk, two suitcases. But I made do with it because I'm like, uh, this is my opportunity. That's all I need. And I'm sure there's a lot of us who all we ask for is an opportunity to just show that we can, that we're worth it. Yeah, we might not have the best test scores. We might not be your perfect applicant. You know, I might not have gone to like an Ivy League school. We don't have any family hit, like history of like doctors. And my dad knows this one and my aunt knows that one. We, I, there's a lot of us, especially from, from kids, from immigrant parents who don't really have that many resources. So again, all I asked was an opportunity and Mexico gave me that. And I'll always be thankful for that. I can assume that Dr. Lopez, you probably didn't consider yourself a wealthy child growing up and obviously money was not there on your father's behalf to waste and everything had to be measured. When the decision to get a, a higher education came along, you went to, to school in Ames, you had to come with some financial amount of money on student loans to accomplish that. How yeah. did you ap approach any financial barriers and what was your family's opinion on taking on this huge economical debt? So I was lucky enough that um, Ames gave me uh, grants to go to undergrad. They didn't cover all of tuition. And it was a little more expensive too because it was out-of-state tuition. It was coming from another state. But they were able to give me a little bit of grants um, for the rest of the tuition and board. Because it's not just tuition. You got to pay room and board. Like I didn't have the luxury of being able to drive in and out of school. I had to live there. Uh, we applied for student loans. And I knew, and my parents were on board. They were like, this is your education. You, this is why we came. You have to do everything you can to be able to get in. So we didn't even think about it twice. And I knew in the long run, it was an investment in myself. It's a lot of money now, but I know what I can do with it. And I just need the shot. Take the shot, put the money on myself. It's an investment. You know, it's um, and just how it is. And it was the same thing for medical school, except the loan difference from undergrad to medical school is substantially um, different. But again, it was an investment in myself that I knew I could do it and I just needed the shot. Give me some overall proportions in American dollars, uh, undergrad uh, versus grad, you know? So, so I recently started paying my loans um, now because the grace period is over from, so you have like a six month period from the time you graduate um, medical school to when you need to start paying. And now I was just checking the other day with the money that I own, I can literally just buy a house. 
It's like, I have a mortgage over my head for a house that I don't even live in. So it's like, but I understand it, this is how it is. And, and every other physician has gone through it. And it's scary at first, but I know if I just keep doing what I have to do, I'll eventually get there and everything is going to be okay. I don't mean to be curious about it, but we're talking more than a quarter million dollars or close to yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. So I do know that the interest rates are lower than a commercial loan, but still it's uh, quite a difficult payment to do because right now you're a resident and I think probably the salary in the state of New York for a PY1 might be close to 55 or what, what is it as of now? It all depends. So I guess it goes by system. Here okay. in New York, you have like Mount Sinai, you have like University of New York, like NYU, you have Northwell, you have Catholic Health Services. So each one of them has their own different system, but it's about 50 to 60. I would say the averages in here in New York, but you also have to take into consideration, right? The cost of living in New York, which would be completely different than the cost of living, like, let's say like in Texas. So it's like, yeah, you're getting paid this much money, but how much do you repay in rent? You know? Yes. Wow. So you went to Mexico, you got accepted. You went for this interview in San Antonio. Was the interview done in uh, Spanish? If I remember correctly, it was like a bilingual kind of thing. Bilingual I mean, type. It was, it was in English, but it, we also, like, I was able to speak in Spanish. Like, I, I knew that for them, it was maybe a little bit easier to speak in Spanish. So I would just switch back and forth depending on how the conversation was going. How do you do then once, you know, you said that you came to San Antonio and then headed to Guadalajara? What was it like? Any cultural shock? I know our the previous podcast prior to this one, episode number 17 with Dr. Uh, to be Jonathan Rios, he said that the biggest shock was that this, despite the fact that he felt confident on writing and speaking English, mm -hmm. uh, Spanish, going to med school in Spanish was an overwhelming thing to do. Yeah, and I, I would agree. And I think it's an experience that maybe not many will do, but it's an experience that we all should experience at some point in our lives, getting out of our comfort zone, because that's where you grow the most. There's a difference. Let's say you're from New York and you fly to California for medical school. Um, the culture is still the same. The language is still the same. The food you can figure out is about the same, right? And if something happens, you can take a quick continental flight back home to, from let's say from LAX to JFK. There's no problem. It's a little different when you go to another country. Uh, going to Mexico the prices is, is a little bit heavier to fly internationally. Um, living, you know, like I said, I, I didn't live in an apartment the first year. I lived in a small seven by 10 room living with another family because I just needed a place to stay. The food is different. You know, I mean, I, I'm Mexican, but I, and I love the food, but you know, I, I miss, I lived in the Midwest my whole life. You know, I, I miss Midwest food. I, I miss the culture. I, I love football and I couldn't watch football because they don't really play football. Especially having lived in Iowa. Sometimes that's the only yeah. thing that there is out there to do, you know? Yeah, exactly. There were some culture shocks and it was, uh, they could tell from my accent at the beginning that I wasn't from there. So like we were lucky enough that Uber was just starting in Mexico at that time. And again, it was, I was a little bit lucky too that it was more of an uh, industrial kind of city in Guadalajara. There were some stores and stuff, but it's still not the same as being home and being your own, in your own comfort zone. But with that being said, I wouldn't change anything because it allowed me to learn more about myself and it allowed me to grow as a person and as a, as a future decision more than I ever would have grown in back at, in the States. So I blessed for that. And again, I'm just thankful for everything. I know we're going to reach a lot of uh, applicants specifically in Central Latin America, the Caribbean probably and South America that are 
Spanish speakers, they're going to really enjoy this episode because of the, the passion that you have and the bilingual skills and the few things that you have mentioned. So you were in Mexico. The first year was tough because you were living in this tiny apartment. What was medical school like? Well, how big was your class? What were the hopes and expectations? How did you settle in? What was the most um, difficult thing to kind of deal with on a regular basis while being there for, you said, the first two years, correct? Yeah, correct. So my medical school, well, it, it's UAG for those who are um, do not really know that much. It's Universidad Autónoma de Guadalajara, and it's um, they have the main campus out west, and then ICB, El Instituto de Ciencias Biológicas, is where the medical school is. Um, and you have the national program, and then you have the international program. I was in the international program because we were coming from the United States. So our class was about 100, 110 people at the beginning. Um, half of it was from the United States. The other half was from Puerto Rico. Um, we did have a couple students from like Japan or China, Korea, a couple students from Jamaica, a couple students from Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador. So we had a, a pretty good class from everywhere around. And then we were still in the, the old traditional style of teaching where we learned all of anatomy at once, all of biochemistry at once, all of immunology at once. Because towards the end of my second year, they started switching to the system base where they just learned cardiology, but they learned embryology, anatomy, biochemistry, pathology, all of just cardiology. So we were in the old school teaching. But yes, how you said, uh, the first two years were there. The most difficult part was, I guess, the food was one because... Even as much as you tried eating, I like going to the gym and lifting weights, but even if it didn't matter how much I did, I wasn't gaining any weight because the diet is different. Also difficult was the amount of work that it takes. They always say how, how much study you need to put into medical school, but you don't really understand until you do it. And it's all case dependent, correct? So depends how much effort you put into it is how much you're going to get it back. So if you're one of those students who is just like, you know what, I'm just here because I have nothing else to do, you're not going to get that much back. Medicine, I always said, you don't need to be the smartest person. I'm not the smartest person. But what I, I did, what I knew what I was and I knew what I wasn't. I wasn't going to be your, your brain and I wasn't going to memorize everything from the book. But what I did know who I was, I was a very dedicated and very disciplined person. I knew that I would have to get up early. I knew that I would just have to go to class, be there early. I tried to sit in the front row. I tried to do everything that I could to learn, audio tape my lectures, take my notes, go back home, redo the lecture, redo the notes, and just study in the library until like midnight and go back home. And I did it every day, but I knew this is what it took because I'm like, I'm not going to memorize the book. You know, it was like, oh, you have like netters and you have, um, what is it, Rosen's like is it pathology or physiology? I can't remember what it was. Um, and all these other books. I'm like, I'm not going to remember these, but I know what I have to do. And um, that was also very difficult because I missed a lot of experiences that other people were doing. You know, some people being in Mexico is easy to like, get distracted because you have Puerto Vallarta four hours down the road and people are like, oh, let's go like this. and go to the beat. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can't do that. You know, I got to test. Also, like all my friends, like now we live in the, like the social media world like Instagram and Snapchat and I'm in the library at like 10 o'clock at night in my corner and I see my friends from back in the States who graduated college who are like engineers and they're making like eighty, ninety thousand dollars and they're traveling the world and doing all these experiences that I didn't have. So missing out on those experiences was also very hard because I'm like, I'm studying here in the library by myself while all my friends are having all these experiences. And I felt that I was missing out on my twenties. Like, is this and I always had those 
like things, you know, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I missing? Did I pick the right career? But now looking back and all those sacrifices that you did and all the sacrifices that you didn't realize all paid as dividends and I'm living out my dream and I couldn't be happier. For our listeners, he touched on some remarkable mindset issues, you know, dedication, waking up early, doing it all again, repetition, uh, success by performing on and on and dedication and obviously resilience and the mindset that you're going to succeed and that there is something better out there on the other side. Sometimes it's so difficult to wake up and think about failure and think negatively and put yourself down and not to see the positive perspective. I would say that looking at the positive right side always helped me to get through it. And I think it did. So those are the, 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 the satisfactions. What would you say that were the lowest moments that potentially made you extremely sad and depressed that you, you felt that I'm going to give it all up? You just said your friends were having a life and enjoying life in their early 20s and you're stuck behind the, the books, uh, you know, not being able to date or go out there and have fun and quote unquote, get drunk and party like an animal. So yeah, absolutely. You know, like living in your 20s, you know, that's what everybody talks about. Like, oh, your 20s is the best years of your life. And being stuck in the library or even even when I was in clinical rotations, you know, I wasn't even Mexican anymore. I, was, I did my third year in Phoenix. And even in, when I was in Phoenix, I would literally wake up every morning, go to clinical rotations, come home, study for CS or CK or whatever it was. And I, and I literally, again, even in the United States, I couldn't even enjoy that. I was like, oh, okay, once I get to clinical rotations, maybe it might be a little bit different. And no, it was still the same thing. And that's something that if you want to go into this field, it's a very rewarding field. And if you really love it, you're going to see it. Why? But you got to sacrifice a lot. And a lot of times we don't really talk about it. You know, before you actually start medicine, you think it's this glorified life. And it is, but you got to love it. You really got to love it to to enjoy it. And once you actually enjoy it, and and you got to understand that medical school is never over if you really love the medicine, there's always something new and there's, oh, you always got to keep reading and you always got to do your lit searches and you always got to look at what's the new thing. Because even from when I started residency until now, it's been six, seven months and or whatever, since it was July. And I still listen to podcasts every day. I still listen to like, what's the new thing? Because it is going to change and you can't become static. So you got to love it. And, and it's really hard. A lot of people just go into it because they think it's a glorified life. And, but once you figure out that you really do love it, it it's worth it. And, and you won't ever want to regret it. Do you think, uh, having had gone to UAG, I know that you had an international program. Did they prepare you a little bit better to sit down for the boards? Because sometimes there is an, a structure for it and sometimes there is not. And how much involvement or how much of a role the university played trying to get you organized to sit down for the USMLE? Yeah, what I've heard about from, from and I would compare it, what I heard about from my friends who attended medical school here in the United States, their, their structure in the curriculum for two years was designatedly made just to pass step one. The first two years, you're like, you're, all we care about is you passing step one. Once you get step one, then you'll study and study for step two and so on and so on. Once you get to residency, you do your own thing. There's pros and cons, right? I don't think their structure was made necessarily only to pass step one. So a lot of times you also had to go out of your way and do more than what was required for you to learn and pass step one. And I think that that's the big difference between a lot of people. But what I do appreciate for my school was that they didn't just teach us step one. They, they tried teaching us all of it. Even if it wasn't high yield or it wasn't what it was on, on the first aid, our school, they're like, you're going to learn all of it. So looking back, and I just got together with a couple of fellow um, 
residents who we were all in the same class, they're one's uh, doing surgery in Hackensack and the other one's doing um, internal medicine at Stanford up here in Connecticut. We all got together this weekend. We were talking about it. We were saying how our school, at first we would complain, be like, oh, this is not, not a step one. It's not a step one. But now looking back, it, it's so much better because we're so much better prepared for medicine as in general than just for step one. And a lot of times, a lot of people might struggle after step one because they were like, okay, well, medical school took my hand for step one. Now I'm in clinical rotations and now I'm in residency. Who's taking my hand now? So it was a lot of uh, self-studying too that was taken involved. But again, you, you got to want it. You know, it's, it's something that you got to have that mindset that you really got to go for it. And if you do, it, it, it will pay dividends. Absolutely. What's your personal opinion in the change of the USMLE for step one for the pass and fail score? And how do you think this will benefit or not us international foreign medical grads? It's a difficult question, right? Because we don't really, it hasn't even been piloted yet. I mean, that's what they're saying, but we don't know how it's going to affect. We don't know the statistics. Back in the day, it was easy to say, hey, A equals B, right? If you score well, this is going to differentiate you. But did it really though? That, that's my question. I don't know. We actually can do like a, a retrospective study and see how much that these scores tie into where you are now. How do these scores represent the kind of physician you're going to be, which is, I think, is a big, important thing that maybe they did look at, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But moving forward, pass-fail, what necessarily means pass-fail, right? It's like, I think the average a couple years ago was like a 217, 220, maybe. I don't know. Now, is that the new line? Is that the pass? Like, if you get higher than a 220, theoretically, did you pass? Did you get less than a 220? Did you fail? Or is that how they're going to do the cutoff? And then again, how much implement are going to put on step two? right? Because like in, at least for EM, step two is very important. Maybe not so much for like radiology or pathology. I, I mean, I don't know how they grade it on, but I know step two is very important in the EM field. So again, it could hurt some people, especially maybe the IMGs and DOs who are maybe didn't go to US medical school, like MD schools, or maybe it can even out the playing field saying, okay, well, we saw looking back that maybe your step one score didn't necessarily say how good of a physician you're going to be, maybe step two did more. Also, a lot of people who score very high on step one, are they good interpersonally? Like, can you communicate with patients? Which is a big thing, right? Because if you're working with patients all day and you're one of these people who is very good uh, book smart, but you don't know how to speak to patients that well, does that mean you're a good doctor just because you got a 260 on step one? doesn't mean anything, at least to me. I mean, if I was a program director, I'll take somebody who is willing to put in the work and is willing to show me that they want to learn because you can teach medicine. You know, you can't teach these personal skills. So I think that's uh, something that we have to look forward to. I can tell just by getting to know you right now and the way you express yourself, you probably are well known for having good patient rapport, don't you? I guess we would have to ask my patients, right? <laughs> um, so, just, yeah, I go just, ahead. Yeah, sorry. I just enjoy... Um, having my patients feel well. You know, if they're going to be stuck in the emergency room, nobody wants to be stuck in the emergency room, right? Nobody says it's the best day of my life. So we can make their day a little bit easier, you know, have a little conversation, joke around a little bit. It goes a long way. Yeah. Briefly, I know that you were in Guadalajara for the first few years, then you came to America for the last two years. Uh, you said Phoenix and Houston, if I'm yes, correct. Exactly. Yes. Really quick, tell us, why do you guys do the first two years there? Why do you do the other two here? I know it's the international program. And when do you take a step one? And when do you take a step two? And how do you prepare to sit down for the, the steps? And, and what kind of timeline you use? And, and yeah. 
and how do you plan ahead? Okay. Uh, yeah. So how you said, so we did the first two years there and then we have the option to either a come to the United States and do a third and fourth year, go to Puerto Rico, um, doing third and fourth year there or stay in Mexico and do the third and fourth year there. A lot of people push forward to come to the United States, one, because you're back in your home country, and two, because when you are applying to these programs, they want to see that you have clinical experience in the American medical field, right? It could be a little bit different. Even if it's Puerto Rico, it, it could be a little bit different, and, you know, there can be a little sort of sway and be like, yes, you're used to having the American way, and then Mexico does it a little bit different. So they like these programs, when you do apply, they like to see that you have U.S. clinical experience. I took my step one a little bit after second year. Um, we were allowed to start clinical rotations through our school without taking step one. So I took it in a couple months into, into year three. Um, with that being said, do I recommend it? Not necessarily. Um, try to get step one done after second year as much as you can. Um, with that being said, because you're stuck doing clinical rotations, you can't put that off. You know, you, you have to go every day. Especially if you're in surgery or OB, you get called on the weekends, you're on call, doesn't matter what time, you don't have time to study. So that was a big thing that I had to learn how to balance um, my clinical experience versus studying for step one. But if you look at the bright side, it gives you the quality and the way of time management. So now I'm a way better time manager um, now due to that. But I wouldn't recommend it because it is a lot harder to do. But again, for step two, you are going to have to do that. It's like you don't have designated time, at least for my school. I don't know how it is for the U.S. grads. For step two, I would have to go to clinicals and then come back and study at home for hours for step two. And for that timeline, I guess that's a little bit on it. Uh, For resources that I did, I used UWorld more than anything, first aid um, for step one, and I used Golgen Pathology Review, and I'm not sponsored by Golgen, and I'm not sponsored by first aid or anything of that, but I think that's a big thing that all medical students use. And it was the same thing for step two. Um, I, I used UWorld more than anything in first aid. And mastering the boards, I think I, I used too. And yeah, it's just a lot of hard work. It's really what it is. You got to put in uh, the elbow grease, you know, and, and just tough it out in, in hours and questions and questions and questions. Um, I think that's usually what it does. Did you get uh, amazing letters of recommendation once you were here in America? So I was lucky that I had great mentors along the way. If you don't mind, I would love to yes, mention. Yes, please, please. So in Phoenix, when I was in Phoenix, my surgical preceptor, he was this old school Indian doctor. Uh, his name is Dr. Tahir. I think he's out in Mesa. He's a surgical preceptor, his general surgery, and he pushed me uh, a lot. I orig- originally wanted to go into trauma surgery. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. And he other students, because he knew what I wanted and he knew what I could do. Um, so he just pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and it made me better. He, I remember at the end, he gave me my evaluation. That was the lowest evaluation I got. And he told me, he's like, I don't give anybody easy scores. It's not, it's easy for a preceptor to be like, oh yeah, hundred percent here, go. And he's like, but I give him honest scores. And he really sat me down and he really told me, he's like, you want to be better? He's like, this is what you got to work on. And I appreciate that because moving forward, I always look back at that. Um, that was in Phoenix. And then in Houston, I had two preceptors who were wonderful. They were both e- e- um, through the ER. Um, one was Dr. Richardson who I'm always going to be thankful for, and I still keep in, t- in contact with her. Uh, she's probably one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever met. She's so passionate about what she does, and she really cares about her patients. Um, and the other one was Dr. Lottie, L-A-D-I. He's actually a UAG grad. He's an ER doctor. He's a palm crit fellow, um, sleep medicine fellow. Wow. Um, yeah, so we always had these conversations. If we were like on a night shift together, we had tummies. Like, you already took the hard road. It, just get used to it. 
you know, you know, you just, you just got to enjoy, enjoy the process, put in the work and I will do it. And luckily they, they gave me some, some letters of recommendations. I never got to see them. I don't, I don't know what they put. I remember I interviewed at, at Cook County in Chicago. Uh, I think it had been a couple of years since they interviewed someone and they told me um, the letter of recommendation from Dr. Richardson was superb. Um, you know, she, she really seems to, to say something about the per- kind of person that you are. And, and I'll give this tidbit to the students rotating through the ER or through anything that they want to go to, put in the work. Um, the preceptors and the medical students, the other residents and the other staff, they really see it. Don't be overbearing either. You know, you don't want to be shown like you're like on the person the whole time. Know your, like, your space, but also don't be lazy. You know, like ask what you can do, do more than what's expected. And, and you don't have to be the smartest. Um, a lot of people think that when you go to medical school, you're like this sort of brainiac and you're the smartest person in the room and all this other stuff. You got to be the, the hardest working person in the room. And it's okay. I've had people like people who I really look up to, they, they told me, you don't have to be the smartest person. And if you get beat, you better get beat by someone who is purely more talented than you are. Don't ever get beat by someone who just outworked you. Wow. Because you, that just means that you just beat yourself. You know, don't let yourself get beat. Put in the work. But yeah, those, those preceptors that I had, all of them. And in medical school, it was Dr. Rande, who was our microbiology professor, Dr. Valdivia, who was our anatomy professor, and Dr. Torres, who was our um, physiology professor. All, all these mentors that I had along the way, they really pushed me to believe that I could do it. And I was just lucky enough to have those people to believe in me and help me. Because a lot of times you don't have those people and you get discouraged and you don't have those people to keep pushing you to tell you, hey, it is possible. So I was lucky enough to have that. And, and if I can do that, and if you can do that, to so all the listeners out there, I just want to let them know it is possible. You just got to believe in yourself, you know? And if you believe in yourself, you put in the work, it is, it's going to happen. You have to put in the work, but you also decided to pick one of the most highly competitive uh, specialties in America to match into emergency medicine. Yeah. Uh, why do you do that? Did the healthcare system in Mexico led you to probably practice something that is not as strong as it is in the United States or in why emergency medicine? So again, right, growing up in a pretty rough neighborhood, you know, you see some things that maybe a five-year-old shouldn't see with like uh, with gunshots and, and everything else. So that was kind of the environment I was kind of, I saw as a kid and I wanted to go into the military for that reason as well, just helping and saving lives. So when I went to medical school, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. And then once I did my surgical rotation, I realized that that wasn't my personality. You know, I don't have that type of personality. And, and sometimes they say maybe egos go different ways and different specialties. Um, I couldn't stand still in a certain spot for hours. I'm a person that loves to talk to people, loves to move around. The faster things go, the, the faster I think, the better I think. So emergency medicine was, was the best way. I described one year between third and fourth year, Phoenix in, in, in the ER, and I, and I fell in love with it. it it's, it's love of my life. I, I absolutely love it. I couldn't pick a better specialty. But in, in talks about the match, yeah, it, it's a hard one, right? Because uh, now people go in for the lifestyle. We work shift work, right? We get paid relatively well. We pay very well. Yeah, we work shifts and we are never on call. So it's like, it's a good life. And that's why people are now switching from surgery, which used to be back in the 90s and 2000s, are now shifting into the ER life because you do get to practice medicine, which is wonderful. You know, you don't just cut all day. Um, you practice medicine, you, you work with patients, and you get to diagnose, and you get to do, it's like what they tell me here, emergency medicine is the switch knife of all specialties. You, you are like the army, Swiss army knife, and you have a little bit of everything, 
Um, you know every specialty. You're the best of every specialty. You might not know every single thing to the dot of every specialty, but you're the best at all them put together. And no one else can do our job. And uh, but yeah, a lot of people do love it now, and a lot of people are going to it. And I think it's probably up there with like anesthesia, maybe plastics or derm. But yeah, it, it is highly competitive now. And, and I had, and I spoke with you about this earlier. I had people, other preceptors, other guidance counselors that they call it, other residents or other medical students who would tell me along the way, "Hey, you know, you should not think about ER. That's really competitive. I don't think you're going to make it." You should go into like family or peds or internal medicine. Not that I'm putting them down, but it's for the fact that it's more IMG friendly. Um, you tend to have a higher chance of matching. And when the time for the match came, you have to put your rank list. You know, all these doubts start coming to your mind and, and all these whispers start coming in and you're like, oh, do, am I picking the right thing? Because it is, it is a game that you have to play sometimes, right? But I had someone tell me and, and I'll always be thankful for her. She told me, he's like, she's like, hey, you already went through all this and you knew what you want to do. Why are you trying to switch now? Um, just stick with it. That's what you want to do. Do it. And, and at that moment, all the doubts went away. And I went for EM. Absolutely. And again, I'm just thankful for people along the way that I was lucky enough to have who supported me and told me that I could keep doing it. And, and I'm out there telling everyone else, if you're an IMG or FMG, doesn't matter what. If you want it, go out there and get it. It's possible, correct? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. It's all about the mindset, dedication. So you just said that you approach uh, the match with certain amount of effort and mindset. How many matches did you go through? Did you were you lucky enough to match uh, through the first one that you uh, you ever submitted your application through? Yeah. So I applied for the match last September. Yes. So what is it, 2018? September 2018. Yeah, and I sent out my application to like 80 places. Wow. Um, yeah, to like five. how much money probably you spend there? Just the application, maybe like two grand on just applications. Because then the money goes into interviews, stay, lodging, taxis, Ubers, whatever you have it, airfare. But I just applied anywhere because I'm like, I don't care where I go. I can go to like Timbuktu. I can go to like Bozeman, Montana. I don't care. As long as I get to be an emergency medicine doctor, I, I'll, I'll work. I don't care. But I got lucky enough to get a couple of interviews and I traveled around the country. And then you got to spend the money on the airfare. Got to spend the money on Hotel. hotels or Airbnbs now, I guess, Ubers or taxis. You know, you, you got to spend the money. But um, again, it's, it's an investment. If you look at it and you're like, oh, I don't want to apply because it's so much money. If you believe in yourself, be like, it's an investment. You know, you got to go with that mindset. You're like, I'm investing myself because at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to do it. I never thought about coming to New York. Well, I had a preceptor in Houston told me he did his residency at Mount Sinai. He's like, if you ever want to practice emergency medicine, he's like, you got to go to, got to go to New York, man. I mean, he was just recently out of residency, so he was still in New York mindset. You got to go to New York, and I was like, sure, I'll give it a try. So I came out here, went to a couple of places. I fell in love with the place. I mean, I love this place. Um, I was lucky enough to match at a residency the first day. Uh, it, it was, I still remember, it was like uh, March 13, 14. Yes, sir. Uh, last year, and I remember I, I just started crying when I saw that said match on like NRMP website on, on that Monday. Um, it said matched and I just jumped for joy. And then the, the curiosity and then the angst and the anxiety come in. I'm like, where did I match? You know, you know until the next Monday, right? Until that Friday, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so beforehand I was worried. I'm like, if I don't match, I have to go to soap. Right. So, but then I got through the first step. I'm like, all right, I matched. This is great. I'm excited. I'm happy. And then it sinks in. You're like, oh man, where am I matching? 
Am I matching in New York? Am I matching in Arizona? Am I matching in Chicago? Am I matching anywhere, right? You're like, oh, I, what about if this is not the place where I wanted to go? But then you got to put yourself in, it's like, beggars can't be choosers. This is what you wanted. Like, where are you going to go? It doesn't matter. But I was lucky enough to get my first choice um, here in New York, and I, I couldn't pick picked a better place. And I'll say this to the people going for the match either this year or next year. Or if you're, I think it's the matches next week, actually. Yep, this month. correct. And maybe for next year, it helps a little bit better. If you're going to go in and apply somewhere, and you're going to rank them, go to a place where you're happy. The worst thing you can do is go to a residency and be miserable for three to four years of your life. And sometimes, the, you know, the glamour says like, oh, this Ivy League place or all oh, this place, like what you thought it was, and maybe it's not. It could be uh, a very malignant program. Go to a place where you're going to learn. Be, be, go to a place where you're going to become the doctor that you want to become. Here at, at Good Sam, we're not a research institute. Um, we're not going to cranking out like papers and all this other stuff. But what we are is we're very good clinically. We're very good at diagnosing patients, managing patients. We're very good at procedures. We get a lot of trauma. So that's the kind of doctor that I wanted to become. You know, I'm not a PhD. I didn't go to get a master's program. I didn't go to get a PhD in, in research and literature. I'm good with my hands. I'm good clinically. And this is the kind of program that's going to make me even better. So pick a program where, that tells you kind of look at senior residents and see, am I going to be like that? You know, you, you look at the senior residents. Are they happy? You know, do people get along? How do they get along? Do they interact? Because a lot of times you can tell when you go out to these pre-interview dinners, you can tell how well they get along. And if they're just like in clicks and they're not really talking, you're like, this is how it's going to be. Yep. I'm lucky enough to all four years of us, we get along very well from first years interns to the fourth years. It doesn't matter. They're cheese and, and I'm an intern. <laughs> We all get along and it's great. It's fantastic. And every day I go to work, it feels like I'm hanging out with my friends doing what I love, not like I'm miserable. So I would say that as a tidbit for the people applying next year. That's golden advice. And how big is your class and how big is your program? How many residents per year? So you used to get four and now we're eights. Now we're eights because the volume is too, big, too much. We get about 90 to 100,000 people a year. And then there's another program like five miles on the road and we still get like a hundred thousand people a year. Um, uh, applicants. Oh I, no. I mean like cash no, volume? volume, volume, volume. No, oh. I, what I was trying to say, how many residents per year? And I oh. don't know if you were talking about the volume oh. of patients per year in your medical. Yeah. I'll touch on both. So volume of patients per year is about a hundred thousand patients per year. Out of those, maybe like 30,000 of them are, are pediatric patients. So we do see a, a bunch of pediatrics and pediatric traumas. Um, we are a pediatric trauma center. We are a trauma center for adults as well. We're like the top uh, stroke center in, in all of Long Island. So we get to see a variety of everything. Now as in program, um, now it's eight per year. And then, uh, so I think last year or for this match, we had about 900 uh, applicants. We interviewed about 200. And we take like six or eight of them. Uh, wow. I mean, I, I would have to ask my program director what the bigger number is. But it goes to say now EM, everybody's applying to EM. Um, Everybody. And, and they said that 50 plus percent of the workforce are women, right? Yes. Uh, this last year they had three. This year they had two. The class that's going to, third year now, that's going to be a fourth year. Who are going to be the chiefs now next year, who are the two of the four. But the whole class is all women. You look at them and I'm telling you, man, they're, excuse my language, but they're badass. Like the things that they do, they take complete control of the trauma room. They know exactly what they're doing, and it doesn't matter what gender you are. If you come out of some programs and the things that, that the doctors can do, and it doesn't matter who they are or what they do, and man, I'm telling you, there's some really good doctors out there. 
that's a good thing about training in a city like New York, you know, yeah, the exposure, the volume, yeah. uh, the independence that they give you to practice, obviously always supervised, but uh, in emergency medicine, you want to go to a program that you can see it all because yeah. you're alone four years from now, three and a half years from now. This is yeah. it. You're the man. Deal with it. Yeah, and, and I'm really lucky that here at Good Sam, there's no anesthesia residency and there's no surgical residency. So you manage the airway and everything without fighting for it, huh? Exactly. So as an intern, we get all the airways. So I think by now I have like over like 70, 80 airways. So, and, and I'm only a couple months into residency. All the procedures, it's us because we don't have a surgical residency. We don't have to fight with surgery or every other day who comes down for the trauma sits us. You know, I, I've done a couple of thoracotomies. I've done a couple of chest tubes. And as an intern, you know, a lot of times there, there's a couple of other programs who are like 30 years and he's like, I've never done a chest tube. And because they always have to hand it out to whoever is doing the other service. So it's great, you know, pick a program where you get to practice all this stuff. Wow, it's, it's been remarkably inspirational. So we've been chatting for more than an hour, Dr. Santiago Lopez. I know throughout this interview, you have given some hardcore golden advice, not only spiritually, but also in the mindset, on the commitment, in the sacrifice, on the dedication. A few more words of advice for anyone that wants to accomplish their dreams of becoming a doctor in the United States and to pick the specialty of their choice. Sure. Um, whatever your specialty is, you don't have to figure it out now. A lot of times people think you, what, you have to go into medical school, you have to figure it out. You do a little bit of everything, you figure out what you like and what you don't like. Figure out your personality. What kind of person are you? Like me, who loves talking to people and loves going around and moving around? Great. Maybe EM's for you. Are you a kind of person who's more of an introvert and you know, like you like to be alone and you know, maybe pathology or radiology is for you? Um, you know, it, just figure out what you like and what you're good at. And then for schooling, figure out how to learn and study. Not everybody studies the same way. Don't tell you everybody is the same way. It's, they're not. Now we're lucky to have YouTube or podcast or anything, books. Um, you know, we didn't have that back in the day. Take full advantage of it. Figure out what works for you um, and what doesn't. And then lastly, uh, don't ever have people tell you you can't do something. Take anybody's words for advice like mine or, or, or like alone. So if you really want to do it, um, just you, you just got to go for it. Don't hear all those haters who are just going to tell you, hey, don't do this, don't do that. A lot of times being scared is what holds you back. And that's going to be the worst. You can, you can be your own worst enemy. There's a quote that I found the other day that I told one of my friends, you know, she sometimes has a hard time and it's hard um, being an intern, but it says, it goes by, you're over here doubting yourself why so many people are intimidated by your potential. So don't ever feel like you're less than someone. Don't ever feel like you're, you're not going to make it. Put in the hard work, keep your head up, study as much as you can. The more you read, the more you learn. In medicine, you never stop learning. So if you're tired of doing tests now because you're like, oh, I'm so tired, I'm sorry, but you're going to have tests all the time. You're going to have to take your boards after residency. You're going to have to recertify. You're going to have to take some CME credit. You're going to have to do these things all the time. And I think I've experienced it into a scholar. And I remember, and it just didn't click, but I heard it one time in undergrad when I was in one of my classes. He told me the point where you just enjoy learning because you just enjoy it, you become a scholar. If you don't, it's just, you're just a student. So now I, I try to read as much as I can and try to learn as much as I can. You're not just studying for your exams, you're studying for your patients. Treat your patients how you want somebody to treat your family members. Do as much as you can. Always go the extra mile for your patients. Advocate for your patients. Because a lot of times doctors won't, especially in the ER, they'll be like in and out times. You're like, oh, discharge, dispo, 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 dispo. 
but sometimes, you know, step up, even if you're a resident, you know, there's times where you can tell your attending, Hey, no, I think we need to do this. Like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, always feel comfortable in your shell and travel. If you have the time after medical school, you have that block travel because once residency starts, oh man, you got to work. <laughs> That's one, one of those advice that I give people just travel. I don't think anyone can take that away, specifically yeah. the experiences of getting exposed to other cultures. Santiago, last question. Yeah. Your mom, your dad, your sister, how much of a role they currently play in your social support system? And I know you're single, but uh, how do you keep yourself mentally stable and how do you keep up with your wellness? You know, as far as my wellness, I try to go to the gym as much as I can. I know sometimes with residency, it gets a little tricky, but um, I was just currently on EMS in the city. So I got off early sometimes or in the weekends I was off. So I get to use those days to go to the gym. Again, I'm very lucky to have a group of residents that we all like to hang out with each other. If it's getting dinner or like watching a movie or something, we always hang out. Um, so that always helps, you know, it's separating your mind from just work. As far as my family goes, they've always been supportive of me. Um, they always tell me to do what I think is right. Um, just follow my dreams. And I always have to tell them, I'm like, hey, I owe this all, all to you. They're like, oh, you should be so proud. You owe this to yourself. I'm like, yeah, but if it wasn't for you guys, um, specifically my, my mom and dad, wouldn't have the opportunities that I have here. You know, they sacrifice everything for me and, and it's my turn to give something back. And not just to my parents, but to the rest of the Hispanic community, who a lot of times we get put down for where yep. we come from or, or what we can't achieve. And, you know, I'm just another person that says, hey, we can and we're here. So, you know. Yeah, we're here. We're here to make a difference. Uh, we're here to support each other. So to our listeners, please uh, come on over, send me your messages if you're interested in participating on the podcast. I want people that are willing to share their experience and just give a positive outgoing message to anyone out there across the world that will be interested in becoming a successful doctor in the United States. Dr. Lopez, thank you for the last hour and a half of your time for allowing me to get into your apartment and share your positive and huge vibrant energy with everyone out there. And as I said, um, just the best of luck. Uh, I'm happy to have a colleague up north that is a Latino like me that is uh, studying hard and putting in the hours to make us look good every day. Oh, th thank you for having me. That's the most important thing, right? Um, you're doing a wonderful thing. I don't think it's been done. At least I haven't seen it been done for at least for our demographic. So thank you for that. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. And this is something wonderful. Thank you for doing that. Um, if you're ever in New York, feel free to uh, shoot me a text. Sure. And, and yeah. Hit me up anytime you're in New York. Um, I'll be there probably for the U.S. Open if the corona <laughs> allows yeah. me to go. The U.S. Open, I think it's in Bethpage. You're not too far from here. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's like 30, 40 minutes away. So that's too far. So if you're ever in New York, feel free to hit me up. And um, Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And listeners, please follow us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. And please remember to download, follow, subscribe, and The YouTube channel is live, episode number one, more to come. Thank you, everybody. Love you all. Keep listening and show your love and sharing because sharing is caring. God bless you. <laughs>